0: Franklin Covey's weekly podcast, now the world's largest podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership. My name is Scott Miller, and I'm privileged to host what is now our fifth plus year of nearly 300 interviews with some of the world's most renowned and profound thinkers, practitioners, authors, people that have an insight into how to be a better leader. Sometimes it's in your organization, sometimes it's you as a solopreneur, it perhaps might be in the role you have as spouse or partner or parent or caretaker or giver. And today I'm delighted that we're going to be talking with our friend and colleague Karen Dillon. More on her in just a moment. You may know that I'm also privileged to write a book each year about this podcast called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, Volume One and Volume Two are now out. And each year, I write a new version featuring 30 people from the podcast. With their permission, I share a transformative insight. The book is available in softcover print, audio, digital, and now video book. Love to have you pick up a copy, Uh, Eight More in the Hopper, for the coming years. Looking forward to Master Mentor Volume 3, releasing in the fall of 2023. In fact, today's guest was... um, was gracious enough to be featured in the first volume of Master Mentors. It is her second appearance on our podcast, You Know Her, as the former editor of the Harvard Business Review. She is a prolific writer, researcher, keynote speaker. She also is the co-author of three books with the incomparable late author Clayton Christensen, whose book now has sold hundreds of thousands of copies named How Will You Measure Your Life? She's here today to talk about her new release, The Micro-Stress Effect. How little things pile up and create big problems and what to do about it. Karen Dillon, welcome back to On Leadership. Thank you, Scott, really glad to be here. Great to have you, Karen. Uh, We're gonna talk today all about this concept of micro-stresses, maybe a new term to people, but I think people will realize, oh yeah, I have that, I have that going on, and thanks for naming it. One of my favorite things about Seth Godin, a frequent guest on this podcast, is I think his talent is naming stuff so we know how to solve it, how to address it. I think it's a talent you share as well, is bringing kind of a common nomenclature to things so we actually know what to do about it. Before we talk about your newest book with your co-author, Rob Cross, I want to talk about another exciting project you're working on with Franklin Covey. Through many years of friendship and trust and co-collaboration, you and our former CEO, Bob Whitman, who is now the chairman of our board of directors, are writing and soon to be releasing a new book for Franklin Covey aimed at the executive-level leadership audience with Simon & Schuster called The Eight Moments of Truth. Now, I know that you are still in the midst of researching and interviewing and writing that manuscript. We think it will be a seminal book for Bob Whitman and yourself, probably releasing in mid-2024. Take a moment and talk about uh, the eight moments of truth, what it's been like to work on a book with our chairman and what are you most excited about the eight moments of truth?
1: It's a fascinating project, Scott. Thank you for asking about it. We've been interviewing a wide range of leaders of organizations of various sizes, trying to identify with them. What are the moments in their career trajectory where they had to make a choice or a decision in some way that was going to affect, their career and or the whole organization and really have lasting effect, have ripple effects beyond that exact moment. And it's been really fascinating talking to the different leaders we've been talking to, a really interesting group of people to identify those moments where they knew the decision they made would actually change something profoundly for them or for the organization. And it's been great. People have been sharing some very personal stories and some stories that were really transformative for the organization where The decision wasn't always easy and it wasn't always obvious, but it had to be made and it had to be made well. Um, So we're trying to chronicle some of those to see if we can identify the kind of key moments that most leaders will have to face at some point between becoming a good leader and a great leader.
0: Karen, thank you for that. I mean this with uh, immense sincerity. Bob and the company are humbled to be able to be co-authoring this book with you. Very excited about its release in 2024. You know, in our 40 years as the world's most trusted leadership firm, we've published dozens of books. We've sold over 60 million copies of our collective books. But I think there are four or five of them that are seminal. Of course, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by our co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey. And then secondly, his eldest son by the same name, Stephen M. R. Covey, of course, wrote the book The Speed of Trust. This book has sold nearly three million copies. He recently released a new book called Trust and Inspire. And then, of course, as you know, we released about a decade ago a book called The Four Disciplines of Execution. This book has sold hundreds of thousands of copies. It is the number one book on strategy execution in, our, in, our, in the entire space. I think many would say that Sean Covey, who wrote the book The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens, is up there at that mantle. This is the best-selling teen leadership book in publishing history. And then I'm going to go, uh, go out on a limb and tell you, I think that your book with Bob Whitman, the eight moments of truth will be in that pantheon of the top five most influential books our company has published. It really is the first book we've written for the senior level, executive level leader that'll also resonate at leaders in all levels. So very look forward, much looking forward to that book coming out. When I introduced you, I talked about what some of your uh, notoriety in a positive way is. Of course, you were the former editor of the Harvard Business Review, maintains the um, kind of untouched you know, influence in terms of executive-level leadership. You had the privilege of writing three books with the late innovation professor, Clayton Christensen, including this book, How Will You Measure Your Life? that has, you know, gone on to enormous influence for people that that have read it where you took business principles and applied them in our personal lives. Talk a little bit about what it was like to be a friend, a colleague, and a co-author with arguably the most influential marketing professor, innovation mind, of our lifetime, Clayton Christensen.
1: Uh, The short version is, I think it was a gift, honestly. I, I didn't actually know Clay for a number of years. I was, even though I was the editor of Harvard Business Review, he was famous, and I certainly had played some role in editing some of his articles. I didn't have a personal relationship with him until we started working on the article that ultimately became the inspiration for the book, How Will You Measure Your Life? And because I had spent so many years working with some really great thought leaders, I probably had a preconceived notion of what kind of personality you are when you are a great thought leader at Harvard Business School, and he was none of those things. He was warm, he was interested in learning from people. The conversations that I got to have in his office I considered kind of a master class in critical thinking. Uh, He was a really great human being and a really great thinker and working with him was just an honor and a privilege.
0: I met him several times and everything you said was true. Uh, Okay, You and Rob Cross have written this new masterpiece called The Micro-Stress Effect, coming out this week. The tagline, again, is how little things pile up and create big problems and what to do about it. Karen, you're a very much in-demand author, editor. Why of all the topics you could have written about this year did you choose to focus with Rob on this concept called Micro-Stress?
1: Well, it's, it's sort of a perfect segue from what you just asked me about. So Rob reached out to me a few times because he was a super fan of How Will You Measure Your Life. And when I finally sat down with them to hear about where he was thinking and where his research was going, I thought this was kind of a perfect sequel from How Will You Measure Your Life. The idea is that every day in all of our everyday lives, we are actually inundated with what we call micro stress. Um, in a way that is really kind of deteriorating the quality of our lives and our sense of our overall well-being. And so to me, it felt like a perfect companion to how will you measure your life. It's great to sort of set the aspirations of how you want your life to be, but if you can't kind of find the energy and enthusiasm and time and emotional space to be the person you want to be, then um, you haven't accomplished anything. So to me, this is a really good companion to that.
0: So Karen, let's level set. I have some questions around how to deal with micro-stresses, how to... Avoid them. Are they good or bad? Will you just kind of level set our knowledge around what is micro stress and how does it appear in our lives, maybe professionally and personally?
1: Sure. So it's a term we, we came up with to describe something that people were, were describing to us, but no one had the language for. And I think, I hope we've given people the language to talk about it. Micro stress in our definition is something very specific. It, they are tiny moments of stress caused by interactions with people in our everyday lives, people we're close to friends, family, close colleagues, um, that happen so quickly that we almost don't even register them in our brains, but in reality, they actually are affecting our bodies and affecting us and affecting our energy because they layer up over the course of a day, a week, a month. So, they're tiny stresses that we don't even know happened to us or forgot about in a second, but are actually really wearing us down cumulatively. Uh,
0: Take it a step further. Give us some examples of either micro-stresses that you and Rob may have identified and wrote into the book, or just things that you've seen in your research of literally countless interviews, comprehensive research that people can identify, oh yeah, that and that, and that is going my life. Oh, I see. Those are micro-stresses that combined are perhaps having a debilitative effect on me
1: so let me let me uh, separate them from stresses, which all of us are kind of we have the language for it. we know what they are. Major macro stresses are major health issues or something the world feels like an unsca- a scary or unsafe place, or ama- we lose our job, big things that happen in our life that we know how to talk about, we know the effect we kind of know what to do about it. And we get empathy from other people about it. it. stresses we're all used to, and the world is full of stresses. Micro stresses are things that, again, happen in routine interactions, not with toxic relationships or horrible life events, but just in the routine interactions that we need to go through in a given day. So, an example would be you leave your house in the morning having exchanged curt words with one of your kids or or with your partner or your spouse, and sort of the rest of the day, you don't feel good about yourself. Or um, the mere act of looking down at a text when you're in a meeting. Um, and let's just say it's a text that's vaguely concerning or worrying or not clear from a close friend or, or, or one of your kids. Um, your mind is going to be absorbed and distracted by that for, you know, at a minimum, it's going to take at least a minute to get back in, on track. But they can last up to 24, 25 minutes before you're able to kind of be back in the moment again. And you're going to worry about that all day but we have them routinely in our interactions with our colleagues, well-intentioned colleagues who just somehow we end up causing micro stress for each other. So for example, would be your manager or your boss kind of subtly changes expectations on you from time to time. Wait, we were working on this project. Is this one more important or not? Or you've spent all this time working on something and then it ends up being not that important to the to your boss's current set of priorities. Or as a manager, if you are managing people and you are concerned about the welfare and well-being of your team, that's a micro stress on you. So you actually worry about it. You want to make sure they're doing okay. Most managers during the pandemic have this in spades every day because we weren't really able to be in touch with our teams the same way that we would be when we were going into the office every day Um, or a colleague falls just a little bit short on what you're expecting him or her to do, just a little bit, not intentionally, but they're just hanging on by a thread trying to get stuff done. But then that falls on your plate. Now you have to worry about it. You have to think about it. You have to get it done. You have to push your own work aside to help make up for that shortfall. They're just the small interactions that end up kind of permeating the rest of our day. And they just build up over the course of a day until you actually, by the end of the day, you feel fried and tired and you can't quite pinpoint why.
0: I think you just described my day. This is about 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, prior to coming on to this interview, I was in my car in the parking lot having my, um, my hide tanned by one of my clients because I missed a deliverable to them. We're, it's all good, it's the, but, but I was you know out there receiving some feedback from my client. Prior to leaving my house this morning, my, mother, my, my wife reminded me of the American Express bill. My mother is flying out to Utah today. She's 83, and she's having some problems with her Uber getting to the airport in Florida. And so is my, is my job to, like, minimize these and eliminate these micro-stresses, or is it to deal with, um, like, resilience and coping mechanisms because you kind of can't eliminate them? I could not prevent that call from happening prior to coming on here on camera.
1: So you've described a perfect typical morning for a lot of people of micro stress. So those are all exactly micro stress because they're all people that you're close to, that you care about. They're not things you're doing intentionally. They're just things that happen that you're, nothing, you're thinking about X hours later because they've stuck with you and they, they can't help but influence your day. So that that's the reality for many of us. Um, and I'll just give you a metaphor to think about how powerful these individual things are. Of course, you can cope with all of those one at a time, but you never have one. You have dozens in a day and they kind of linger over. So a metaphor that a neuroscientist gave us that I thought was really helpful was imagine kids jumping on a bed and they kind of go on one, but one at a time, keep adding to the people on the bed until there are 10 kids on the bed, jumping on the bed, the beds hanging on, it's holding up. But then the 11th kid comes on and the bed breaks. That's what microstress is. All of those individual kids, one by one, not a problem. But when you put the 11th one on, it just kind of breaks you down. So you need to do a couple of things. You need to both kind of have the language to recognize what's happening to you is real. You know, it does have an effect. It is taking a toll on you physically. Um, your body is responding to the fact that it's being stressed, but it, it doesn't trigger the normal fight or flight mechanisms that major stresses do but your body feels it feels that exhaustion feels burnt down Um, one just recognize it and two you can find ways to push back on some of them not all of them but some of them a couple even would make a material difference in, in the stress level of your day and then three and most importantly you do need to find ways to not necessarily to build your individual personal inner grit resilience but to kind of structure your life so that you have some context for the microstress. You have other things that kind of inoculate you from feeling them so acutely. We can talk about that in a little bit more detail later.
0: Well, I think you've also, uh, you've in many ways encouraged us to set some boundaries. Like uh, this exact thing happens to me every day. I'll be on a Zoom call with a client in an intense conversation and one of my two phones will buzz and I have them next to me. I'll look at a text, and it will be something of consequence, right? Uh, uh, Your airline flight's been delayed three hours. You're now landing at 3 a.m., not midnight. Or a publisher has said, yeah, I'm not happy with this manuscript. Should we part ways? Or something like that, and I have to digest that. And my sense is is that, yes, I shouldn't be multitasking, but there's only so many hours in a day, and so either do some things at the same time or work till 9 p.m. every night. Would you advise people to turn their phone off or over so that they're not having to have those micro-stresses come at them when they're probably doing something else simultaneous. What would your advice be as the author and as a person who has a lot of things going on themselves? What kind of boundaries should you you set there?
1: So a couple of things you can do. What what you're talking about are things you can do personally, but there are a lot of things you can do with the people you work with, the team, even setting expectations, level setting expectations. Um, We as a team agree that None of us are expected to respond to emails after eight o'clock at night. We as a team agree that if you need to send me something, you're gonna time it so it comes first thing in the morning so I'm not getting something at 10 at night. We as a team agree that we're not gonna do reply to alls in in a stressful way that just adds, thanks, thanks, sounds good and suddenly you've got 24 emails on the same topic and you're trying to remember what the original thread is. So you can set boundaries even with the people you work with. But personally, yes, you definitely can set some boundaries, but what you're also looking for are some ways to maybe make that microstress not feel as stressful for you And in particular, what we talk about in the book, our research was focused on 300 high performers. So people who were really good, identified by their own companies at world-class organizations, being high performers, higher than the average performer at at those organizations, who themselves felt the toll of this micro stress. And the difference was that the people who dealt with it well were ones who actually had other things in their life. We talk about them as authentic connections, two or three authentic connections um, outside of work and home because that helps you put some of those micro stresses in perspective. What you just talked about, your examples of micro stress. It might be that a really good friend of yours who you check in with from time to time says, you know what, it's fine. Uh, book publishing rolls like this all the time. You just, just don't let that get to you. And that's enough to kind of buoy you back up. Or it might be that uh, your wife says, your mom's gonna be fine. It's gonna, we'll take care of it, don't worry about it. Or it might be that someone else has something worse going on in their life and you're like, you know what, My problems are not so bad. So it's really important to actually make sure you make some time, some amount of time, for other things so that your life is not consumed by having to draw boundaries around things that are all kind of eating away at
0: you. Karen, it seems like um, agreements, setting agreements with yourself, with your team members and families is a crucial part of managing micro-stresses. Let's sharpen that pencil and take it tighter for leaders. I love the idea you talked about, perhaps we agree, not to send text after 8 p.m. or don't reply all on trivial things. Those are some good things. Give us some more of those. Speak to the literally millions of people leaders that are listening or watching this podcast right now. What are some ways that culturally leaders can eliminate some of the micro-stresses that they actually might be causing unconsciously to their teams, but also get some credit? by saying, hey, let's set some boundaries and agreements so that I'm not contributing to your micro-stresses. That's a little self-serving, but sometimes leaders need to get credit for goodwill. What are, some things, what are some other things you think teams can do in agreement with each other to consciously name and eliminate or at least minimize micro-stresses that they might not be aware they're creating?
1: So it's not actually self-serving at all. One of the findings of the research in our book is a really significant source of microstress for you is the boomerang effect of microstress that you have unintentionally caused other people. No one does it on purpose. It's not intentional. But the things that we tend to trigger without thought necessarily almost always come back on us. So as a leader, it's actually a good practice for you to be very conscious of the microstresses you're causing. But I'll give you a great example from someone in our, in our book. Um, There was a guy who had a new boss, and this guy had been really successful at managing expectations of his old boss, and he was very productive, etc. His new boss was kind of a brainstormer, and so he would always stop him in the hallway and say, could you do this? What if your team did that? And he the new boss thought this was an exciting way to kind of exchange ideas, and I've got a lot to say, and I'm learning my way. But this guy, who was a high performer, took everything as... I have to do that. Okay, you know, how high do I need to jump? And so he found himself kind of running himself ragged, running his team ragged. And then it would almost be like the new boss had sort of forgotten the hallway conversation or forgotten the sort of impact of what it was that he had just asked him to do. So together, they came up with a really good device that made for a constructive relationship. If the new boss was sort of brainstorming about something, the the manager guy, the, the direct report would say, okay, on a scale of one to 10, how important is it to you? Is it a I should drop everything because this is the most important thing to you. Is it a seven? It's pretty high priority, but let's try to figure out how to work it in. Or is it a three? You're just brainstorming. And the manager would say, oh, gosh, no, this is a three. I'm brainstorming. That would sort of say, okay, great. I'm going to put it on my when I have time to-do list. Or if the manager said it's a seven, it's pretty important. That gave the employee license to say, okay, so for me, the execution of that would be a 10 in terms of, how difficult it's gonna be and time consuming. So what what can I change on my priorities list so I make time for this? It just became a fun kind of quick conversation where they could level set with each other and it stopped having the kind of well-intentioned interactions turning into stress for not only that guy, but the team of people that he worked with. I thought that was a really great example of that. Um, and I think it's simple things like never finishing a meeting without planning in a few minutes at the end where you're saying, okay, are we clear? you're doing this by this date, you're doing this by this date, like taking the time. So many of us we get used to our meetings go 60 minutes in, and then we get up and we go into the next one and you, everybody leaves the room thinking they're clear on what they're supposed to be doing, but they're not. And then this, the stress and chaos that comes again in small ways, but from after that for being slightly on different pages than you might be with a colleague creates micro stress for you and for the whole team. Um, There are lots of examples of how you can just communicate better. And as a manager, giving your team permission in the appropriate ways and appropriate moments to push back on you to come into your office and say, I'm totally on board but I'm having trouble juggling all these things. What's the right prioritization of stuff? Having those conversations goes a really long way because most people are just trying to figure out which balls can they drop because they can barely hang on by a thread. You'll be helping them prioritize the balls that you don't want them to drop so that they pay attention to the ones that need to be taken care of.
0: Karen, your research with your co-author, Rob Cross, has been personally very helpful to me because uh, I own several companies. I have multiple roles in life, professionally and personally. And I was reading your book the last couple of days, preparing for the interview, and I realized one of the things that I do too frequently is I spend all day from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. making all kinds of commitments, like big commitments to clients, speeches, authors, and I schedule no time in the day to deliver on those commitments. So I stack all of these commitments up, and then I leave the end of the day thinking, okay, I now need eight hours to deliver on those commitments, but the next day is gonna spend the whole day making all these commitments again. And I've realized that it's both adding big stress and micro stress to my life. Would you give us any advice on how we de- deal differently with the big stresses in life versus how we cope with and deal with the micro stresses? Any sort of bifurcation or insight there?
1: Well, again, recognizing that they're all real and they affect us and that there is, there is a toll to be paid. And, and the big stresses in life, I think those you just need to... Take time for yourself, reach out to people. Again, I'm thinking of death in the family or uh, a mental health issue for someone you care about or a major move is a really big stress. Just recognize those are big and those take a big toll. And as a manager, being compassionate to the people that report to you too, who have those big stresses. But what's important about the microstresses is they're so invisible, and we're all especially high performers, which you are, Scott, we're so conditioned to think, I just have to do more, be better, hang on to it, I can do it. I mean, even talking about your day, that's a very common phenomenon with the high performers in our research, where they can, their work, air quotes, would start after they finish the eight or nine hours of you know back-to-back meetings all day. And the pandemic, for a lot of us, made it worse, because we were used to, let to say, eight one-hour meetings in a day and you kind of think, okay, five o'clock, I'll start to get stuff done. Pandemic, in the good intentions of making communication easier and the fact that we were all working virtually, many companies went to half-hour meet- meeting structures, but that meant you might have 16 half-hour meetings in a day. So suddenly you have 16 sets of to-dos and follow-ups and make sure I'm clear and I'm not misaligned with anyone, followed by All right, at five o'clock I'll start my day. And that's just not sustainable. So I mean, even at a simple level, at a really simple level, I would start with a 45 minute meeting as your as your unit of time instead of an hour. Don't don't think in terms of an hour. And before you leave, before you get to the next hour, the turn of the hour, spend those last 15 minutes being organized either as a team or individually. What do I need to do as a result of this? What communication do I need to pass on? What's important here? So you don't forget what happens. I think we're just so overwhelmed that sometimes we can't keep everything in, in at the top of our mind. And um, being kinder to yourself and changing your work patterns can make a really big difference.
0: Okay, from your lips to my team's ears, because my team will schedule me on a nine o'clock keynote and then a 10 o'clock keynote and then an 11 o'clock meeting, and then a noon keynote, and I'm thinking, guys, I have a bladder. H- how is this possible? How do I switch <laughs> from Zoom to Teams on different topics, different audiences? Come on, guys, these are, these are, uh, these are micro-stresses. Tell us about the concept of body budgeting.
1: Body budgeting is really interesting, and this is we talked to some really esteemed neuroscientists for the book, but that's the idea that basically your body responds to stress in lots of different ways, but what it's trying to do is sort of manage your metabolism, that's that's the bottom line, to in response to keeping it steady. So stress can raise your blood pressure and, and raise all your bodily functions, and body budgeting is your body trying to constantly keep that at a steady state. But what's really interesting about that is that micro stress, major stress we know will sort of raise all of that for you, raise raise all of your metabolism and your stress levels, your cortisol levels and all that kind of stuff. But micro stress that happens has a really significant impact on your body budgeting as well. And there's some interesting things that happen. happen. One thing that's really interesting is that if we are physically in proximity to people who we care about, we literally can pick up on their stress. It's called uh, mirror neurons. So if the expression, I feel your pain is very real. Someone that you're close to that's going through some stress or pain in the moment, your body can actually process it as if you are undergoing it yourself. So you being surrounded by people who are are stressed will in fact literally stress you as well. Um, And there's a really great piece of research that says that if any of us are exposed to social stress within two hours of a meal, our body will actually metabolize that food as if we ate 104 more calories than we actually did. And if that happened to us every day, that's 11 pounds a year we would all gain, just, literally just from being exposed to social stress in two hours after we've eaten. So your body is trying to kind of keep you at an equilibrium, it's called allostasis, all the time. And these microstresses sort of throw a spanner into it. They they make your body trigger the the after effects of stress and you may not be aware of it. So you're kind of always in that heightened state of being stressed and microstress plays a really significant role on a day-to-day basis.
0: Karen, is there any correlation to what you just said in the fact that the entire production team just took four steps back away from me? Is there any correlation here at <laughs> all? <laughs> I think I, so. I am,
1: for all of us as leaders, it's an interesting thing to think about, right? If we are stressed, our team will literally be stressed. It's not just They're not just choosing to be stressed. They are stressed. Their body is processing that stress. What they see happening to you will happen to them as well, too. So just realize the, secondhand, the effect of secondhand stress both on us and what we sort of spray off to other people is really real.
0: So what you're saying is that, Keep six-foot distance for the last two years. It was really people just keeping their physical distance from me because of the (laughs) micro-stresses that were coming onto them. It's all my fault, people. Okay, let's end this conversation. Of all the research that you and Rob Cross, your co-author, did on the causes of micro-stresses, what were some of the most common causes that you could name that people who are listening and watching today could take away to say, okay, so I understand that. I'm going to set a boundary around that. Give us the most, maybe four or five top micro-stresses in people's lives. So
1: um, in, on the home front, all of us have it, the way we communicate with each other, because we are able to be um, in communication with our loved ones 24 seven texts from people, um, which we send off kind of casually. You know, We might be stressed in the moment or blowing up steam. We forget about the fact that that's gonna influence the person and they're gonna pick up the stress and be stressed for us. And we won't be able to see each other till later in the day. Okay, so stop kind there, of- I'm
0: gonna interrupt you. You gotta stop there. That means yes. my wife Stephanie should stop texting me from the bathing suit store at, eight, at, at 9.30 in the morning when she knows I'm in a meeting with the CEO asking me which of these two bathing suits should I buy for vacation in June. I'm like, "Hun, i I'm in a meeting with the CEO. Okay, so Stephanie, stop doing that. Or, or,
1: Or Scott, you can turn off your phone so that you know when you are not in the position of being able to be helpful and responsive to someone you love so much that you're not putting yourself in a position where whatever she needs to do is triggering stress for you.
0: Or maybe I should be more like my CEO, that even if the meeting, if his wife called him and asked him the same question or some question of gravitas, he actually would leave the meeting and go take his wife's call because his relation with his wife is more important than his role at work. So maybe I should flip that and make my priorities more like Bob's. Anyway, keep going. Touche. Um,
1: and so so that's one. So that's one example. But it's, um, my point being, we cause each other stress without realizing it. We just do. Um, I know I do it as parents. I want to hear from my kids all the time. And so sometimes when I don't hear from them, I'll almost send triggering texts to like, you know, checking in, how you doing? And I'm probably, I am probably causing them more micro stress. So I think examining all of our own habits in how we communicate with each other and realizing that they're kind of residual effects of that is one. Um, I think just well-intended but miscommunication among colleagues and peers. Because we don't ask, we don't say why, we don't explain the effect of this. We just, everyone's trying to do better and to be a high performer all the time, but you don't kind of ever help the other person recognize or understand the consequences of the, the, the ask or that you don't understand something or that you're unclear. So I think so much of it is I'll call it lack of trust in our colleagues and and teams. And I don't mean mistrust. I don't mean that they're actively, we don't trust them. It's more because we move around and we change who we work with and how we work so frequently, we don't have what I think people did years ago, long established relationships where we know them so well and we know what they're reliable for and they know what we're reliable for. So we're kind of constantly navigating relatively new territory with people we are working with that doesn't mean they're bad relationships it just means that we both are probably making assumptions that may or may not be constructive or healthy Um, that's a really good example i think secondhand stress is huge people we all have a colleague we may be the colleague who who just tend to get stressed about everything and share it with us all, that, that takes everybody's productivity down because I, I call it the spray, right? You can't take it out of your mind that so-and-so is, even worrying about somebody being really stressed out stresses you out, it just is a real thing. So being conscious of the, what you may be spraying off to other people just because you're thinking aloud or talking aloud or it makes you feel better, realizing the effect doesn't mean you don't need to have outlets for that stuff, but you can find constructive other outlets as opposed to the people you need to work with on a day-to-day basis. Um, And I think just things that make us, they tax our emotional reserves in a way that we haven't thought about. Um, A negative interaction with the sibling when you're, you know, trying to do the right thing for your parents or Um, you don't like the way you snapped at a direct report because you were stressed in the moment. Those things actually linger with us in some way, too. So the the micro stress of that moment will will affect both of us. And just trying to kind of take a step back and not let those things get the better of us because the consequences of that go on, you know, go on for the rest of the day, the next day, who knows how much longer than that.
0: Karen Dillon, you are a class act. I think... Uh, Of the many things I like and respect about you is the following. I mean, you are an intellectual. You are a researcher. You are super credible in the academic space. You've written books that have had seminal impact. And you're also super relatable, and you're very practical. And I think that's the biggest gift that you and Rob Cross have given the readers of the MicroStress Effect because you have this deeply well-researched and interviewed book But the stories and the content is so practical and applicable, like the last nearly 40 plus minutes of this interview. I want to thank you and Rob for this book. It's available now. It's called The Micro-Stress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems and What to Do About It. Karen Dillon, glad you came on. We'll see you back here in about a year for a new interview on the book you're writing with our chairman, Bob Whitman, The Eight Moments of Truth. Great to have you back today, Karen. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. And we'll see you back next week for a new conversation on leadership.